Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. We're backstage at San Diego Comic-Con. We're outside. This is Matt Harrigan with the Adult Swim Podcast. Chris Pernosky has been making cartoons since the late 90s. He just pulled up in his Titmouse RV to tell us everything he knows. So you come to Comic-Con, and it's a, it's a clusterfuck yeah. zoo here. Yeah. Anybody who's never been to Comic-Con is bananas. And there's so many people, and it's hot. But we've been doing, for the past five years, an RV where we stock it full of cold water, beer, booze, and ice cream. And ice cream. And we just drive around, and we do all our press. This is the only thing I'm doing that isn't on the RV right now. Yeah. <laughs> the only interview I've done that hasn't been on the RV. You do everything on the RV. Yeah, man. And most of the most of the people are so stoked. You know, if you're writing for, like, a whatever, a nerd blog or animation blog, yeah. mostly the people who want to talk to us, they're like... They don't have big fancy press rooms. They're like, and they're like, "Whoa, this is great!" Like, I don't have to like find a corner of the lobby of the yeah. Marriott to like try and find a half decent place to record right, you. to plug in yeah. my shit. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly at the bayfront. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's been cool. And then we 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 stay at a campground. You camp? Yeah, and like the first three years, I actually slept on the RV with like our crew. You slept on the RV. Yeah, yeah. And it's cool. The, RV, the RV's air-conditioned and the campground's cool. But now we rent these little cabins, too. So we have a whole whole scene down at Tip Mouse folks at the campground. And we drive around, get drunk, go to the parties, do our Comic-Con shit. Tell me about your relationship with Budweiser. Oh, man. Well, I, uh, you know, I started, uh, man... Like, maybe, like, over 10 years ago, like, 10 or 15 years ago, just I found one of those uh, stupid, like, Budweiser, like, kind of fishing hats, like a bucket hat on eBay or something, and ordered it and started wearing it, and then I got a a couple of them, and it it became a thing, like, you know, people have these stupid, you know, in this entertainment industry, it's good to be, like, recognized or yeah. to see something. And we were like, oh, that's the guy with the bucket hat. And then I would get other ones, like Marlboro ones or PBR ones. And then I found it's harder and harder to get them. And uh, they sometimes are fucked up, and they get more expensive. So I started making my own with, like, the Titmouse Budweiser amazing. version. Yeah. And now what's good, when they first were done... They uh, were too new looking, but now I have a few of them. Now they're all fucked up, just beat like they up. should. They're all beat up. And you know, Tommy Blacha, yeah, who's uh, you know done a bunch of Adult Swim stuff and a bunch of stuff. You know, he's Murder Face and he's co-creator of Metalocalypse. It's his girlfriend, Allison, is like a cost. She does like costumes for TV shows and stuff. And she hooked me up with the people. I'm like, you must know somebody who can make a bucket hat. She's like, yeah. She's like, give me the hat. That is the exact one that you like, and they'll base a pattern exactly off that hat. Wow. And then you can get this fabric made online. It's 15 bucks a yard. You just send them a pattern, and they'll make it for you. 
So nowadays with the internet and shit, you can make anything. It's crazy. So, but you don't let other people who work there wear them. No, nah, I mean, not that I, not that I forbid them from wearing it. It hasn't really come up. Probably not. It might be weird. It would be weird. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, and I like to drink beer. Too. I have one of those hats, yeah. uh, the Budweiser one. Yeah, yeah. But without the brim, like it, it's just like a, oh yeah, the top I have part. Some, some of those too. I did, I did once one. So I ordered one. Yeah, and it was like a little tiny one, like a beanie, like that, kind right? Of, yeah. Same and I fabric. wore it under my one. <laughs> And then at one point in a meeting, I took off my hat, like did a take, like a cartoon take, where I pulled off my hat and had another hat under there. People were like, what the fuck? Do you wear that little hat under there all the time? It worked like a charm. The backup hat, <laughs> yeah, in case that yeah, one blows yeah. off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. So you really have a signature look. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I got, like, you know, I'm a fucking white, bearded, fat dude with glasses yeah, that's like every animator man yeah, i gotta i gotta have something that it's like makes me say that actually years ago when adult swim basically just had a booth uh in on the floor they would swap out the signs for the shows each day and they had a, this cool like death clock one that was like made out of metal yeah. and it was like bleeding and stuff and we were like what are you doing with that and they're like man we're just gonna throw it out unless you want it you can come you can have it but you got to figure out how to get it home and we're like yeah we'll figure it out so we had like a like a uh like a honda crv and we like measured it's like if we put it in at an angle it'll fit so we uh this is going back to being a, a fucking white fat guy with a beard and glasses uh-huh. right yeah and uh preaching in and, the choir. Uh, so they're like come back at the end of the day and take it and it's yours right so we're going in i'm walking with our like she was our uh like kind of office manager at the time she was driving the truck kate who's like a big tall like like very like uh noticeable like had a crazy like dreadlocks and different colored hair and piercings and tattoos so she's real noticeable right and we're walking to go into the con and it's it, the floor is shut down so the first door the guy's like you're not allowed in and i'm like i'm going to they're giving me the sign adult women they're like do you have an exhibitor badge? And I didn't. I just had a regular badge. They're like, you can't come in. I'm like, shit. So we go to the next one. I'm like, I'm, I got to go. And they're like, you can't go in. You can't go in. So then we go to the third one. And the same thing. You can't go in. You can't go in. I just look over at Kate and I just make a break for it and run Grand. past the guy. And she couldn't. She's like so recognizable. She couldn't get past him. But once I was in the sea, it's like, what do they do? The guy can't chase me and abandon his post. And then if he calls on the CB, he's like, I spotted a white man with beard and glasses with a cartoon character shirt on. It'd be like, fucking, there's a fucking hundred thousand guys like that. In there. Yeah. And then we got the sign and we drilled it to the wall of Tip Mouse. It's still there. And for years it dripped. It had this weird goo in it that was supposed to represent blood. I think for like five years it never stopped dripping. There'd be blood. these weird puddles. Yeah, it was a bleeding sign. Oh, wow. It was an actual bleeding sign. So start start from the beginning. Yeah. Where uh, you're from Jersey and you started. Yeah. Did you draw when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. I drew pictures all the time. Drawing your notebook in class and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, all the time. What I'd do you draw? Do probably standard kid stuff. A lot of. Kiss logos and like, stuff? Like, uh, yeah, I remember I have a. I have a picture I was, you know from when I was real young probably I was like five years old that was like it was Kiss and Elvis on stage together 
I thought that's that was a scenario that could happen. Perfect band. Yeah, I think they were the two bands I had heard of at the age of six. You know, but I drew probably a lot of monsters, a lot of superheroes. You know, standard uh, demons. You know, chopping each other's heads off or whatever. You know, little kids want to draw. Yeah. You know, and uh, would do those ones in the edge of your uh, textbooks, flip book. Yeah, little flip books uh-huh. of like little little guys killing each your other. Parents encourage you. Yeah, the parents didn't discourage me. You uh-huh. know, they they were pretty encouraging, and you know, and I had a friend who uh, was a couple years older than me that got a video camera when it, when that wasn't as as uh, as big of a thing. He had to be like rich. His dad, he was divorced, and his dad was older, so he he would buy him all this shit that no nobody else got. It worked in your know? favor. Yeah, exactly. So he had like a VCR. In like 1981 or something like before anybody else, it will like, whoa a VCR that's awesome you know, and uh, so we would make these dumb movies and stuff, and then I started to get the idea that you could mix like drawing and making dumb like skits and stuff. So I started trying in high school, started trying to do animation, like made little short dumb short little films, and uh, then ended up going to the school of visual arts for animation. So oh. uh, that was cool. And then it was lucky because I graduated in 94, which was also right in the middle of another animation boom like there is now, right? It was like yeah. there's a lot of cartoons going on. I was lucky to jump right in uh, to MTV on Beavis and Butthead and Head and Daria and all these shows. And that's actually where we first met when you were working yeah, on Deathmatch. Yeah, animation. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I was so green. I didn't know how shit worked. And uh, I guess now I get it more. You know, I'm, I'm finally, I'm telling you this story. This is the first time I'm actually reflecting on this. Yeah. It's like, because I, I see this now as a guy who runs a studio. I think I was ID'd as a guy. It's like, that guy probably has a show in him, you know. He's they like, he's doing you? a good job doing boards. I was doing some station IDs uh-huh. and stuff. So they gave me a, a blind development deal. They're like, develop some stuff, right, and did all this stuff. And then I had this one at the end. I kind of looked at the whole thing, and it was a lot of, really weird stuff and i'm like what would mtv buy and i had done this student film that was kind of this natural dialogue at sva at sva Uh like following these kind of like kids lived in the lower east side and like animating their dialogue and stuff so i was like just took a frame of that film had no idea what the show was and i'm like downtown uh what do you do in new york when you're 15 this downtown answers that question and then abby turkuli the guy running he's like that's the one I want to buy. And I'm like, fuck, I got to figure out what that is. What's and I was, show? Like, I was like, we're just going to walk around. I thought we could make something like Slacker or something where it's like, we're just going to record real dialogue of kids, come back, edit it together and animate it. There won't be any regular characters. It'll just be people hanging out. And they're like, yeah, man, that's the show we're going to make. But then once it got into, into series, uh, there was a new president of the network, and he was like, oh, you got to have scripts and hire actors and shit. So it's kind of like a hybrid uh-huh. of it because a lot of the actors are people we met on the street when we were doing the interviews, so they were not professional actors. And a lot of the stories were like based on the stories that they told us, but we still had people write it. But that was a cool project. It was real weird. I was, uh, And I was like, I had no idea that that was like a fluke that somebody would buy a show like that like especially back then so how did you you came out of sva and yeah you graduated with a degree in what what do you guess get it's a there? bachelor of fine arts and then you graduate and you walk out of school and then yeah. you stand on the street and you look around and what do you well that was like a time when 
like I said, it's happening now too. Animation was so they needed people so bad that so you, you I got call the gig. MTV? I like, got the gig. They the called door? me. They knew, I, I've I had a gig before I graduated because basically one of my classmates was interning at MTV, and I think she told them they're like, "Hey, who at SVA? Like, who could we hire?" And I guess she gave them a bunch of names, and they called me and interviewed me. And they're like, "When can you start?" And I'm like. I graduate on Wednesday, and they're like, can you start on Thursday? Is that what happened? Yeah. yeah wow. Basically. So it's not, you know, it's not the best story for, like, you know, this is how you do it. Right, you know? right. It's like, I would say that's probably rare, but it's kind of how rare. shit's happening again now. Is because it? we're grabbing people straight out of school. Like, there's such a need for talent and animation yeah. right now because there's so many cartoons being made. And I got to say, specifically... If you're out there, animation fans, animation wannabe people who work in animation, like, get good at doing storyboards. That's the one that we need the most, man. It's super hard to find good storyboard people. Why is that, do you think? Well, it's you need to be good at a lot of things. It's like yeah. a lot of different disciplines. Because, like, if you're purely an animator, you could dig into that craft, which is, like, the movement and the timing and the acting and stuff. Or if you're purely in design, it's about, like, you know, being, like, a really good drafts person and, you know, making design decisions that are pleasing. Um, being a storyboard artist, you have to be kind of, like, a good storyteller, like, kind of a good, like, cinematographer. You have to be, like, a good writer. You've got to be funny if you're working on a funny show. You also have to be good at drawing. You also have to be good at, like, posing and acting characters. It's like... There's like ten different skills you Is there have. There's a to stepping have. stone to becoming a good storyboard artist. Yeah, that was the first gig I had actually at MTV, which is there's a gig called a storyboard revisionist, and that's like where you fix all the other boards. So I remember it was such an eye opener for me because you you idolize the storyboard artist. Like that's what I want to do. And then you sit with the directors, and they rip the board artists' work to shreds. They're like, don't do this, don't do this, this sucks, this sucks. And you're like, oh, man, it looks pretty good to me. You don't realize but, what the problem yeah, is. Yeah, and then when you work as a revisionist, you really learn because you have to fix all the things, you know, all the recurring problems. And, you, you know, some of them are specific to shows or specific to that director. But then some of them you realize are like, these are the, the things that you always want to do and these are the things you always don't So the revisionist do. isn't identifying the problems. It's No, the yeah, the revisionist is just the fixer. Who it's identifies like the, the problems? The director, generally the director or be or maybe the showrunner or creator. I mean it depends on the scale of the show, right? Right. Like sometimes it's like you got a show and it's like there's many levels of bosses and sometimes it's like well the creator is the showrunner and also the director. So then you're just dealing with one person but Sometimes there's, like, you're working on a big show. There's a lot of notes coming down the pipeline, you know, from all different, like, like a show like Big Mouth, right, that we do for Netflix. That's a pretty big show. There's, like, four creators, and there's a supervising director, and then there's episodic director. So you might be getting, like, six, six you know, people's notes condensed down into whatever. So tell me about the uh, those early days when you were Daria. Beavis, yeah, yeah, MTV, yeah, in the nineties, yeah, man, it was a cool time. It was like, it was super, you know, fucking America had so much money. The economy was doing well. MTV threw these crazy parties all the time, 
and it was when MTV was a thing too, you know. Right. And, and they all these like I mean you you remember they they would throw these Christmas parties and these VMA parties, boat parties, boat parties. There it, it was it was crazy. It was uh, so that was like I was like this is what it's like to work, you know. And then I remember moving out to LA and thinking like. In, in Hollywood, there's going to be even crazier parties. Never as crazy no. as the MTV uh-uh. parties, you know. The uh, and then the work itself too. I think uh, you know Beavis and Butt was already a hit. I came on in the you fourth on season, so I worked on rolling. season four, five, six in the movie. So I didn't work on seasons one through three. So it was already everybody knew it was by then. It was like a huge show. So, uh, but I didn't. I was working as a storyboard artist on that show, and I had no idea and I, I can't even imagine this today no idea what the schedule was like I felt no pressure to like like I had no, I would just work at my own pace and hand it in and nobody ever told me when I had to get stuff done you think you were fast or I think I, yeah pr- probably you know was fast enough at least not but I think it was more like hey that show was doing so well and they couldn't you know, like once it got out of boards, you know there were other stages to do. So it's like, if all the boards were stacked up, they wouldn't have enough. I don't even know. I don't know why I was never aware of a schedule. You weren't under Maybe pressure. I had the most amazing producer and production team that were pulling my strings as puppets without me realizing it, and I it was great because <laughs> I felt no pressure at all. Or maybe it was like not at all organized in any way. I have no idea. Either way, <laughs> yeah. you're oblivious. But the show got done, and it was funny. That's the other thing. Back then, you know, working on on that, I was like, oh, man, uh, this show's real funny and good. And it was easy to make the boards funny because the track was funny. And then you start working on other shows. You know, when I moved out to L.A., he realized, like, oh, not every fucking thing is geniusly written, funny show, and you, you gotta, feel pressure to, improve yeah, you got to work real hard to make it good. <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah. when you're working on stuff, you're like, oh, this one's uh, oof. Like, I directed a couple pilots, and it's like, yeah, there's always something cool about them. But when I'm the, my first couple gigs, and I'm like, this is, we got to figure out how to make this work. Like, this doesn't, this is not as funny as it needs to be to get picked up you know like you why'd you move to la well so here's what happened i was uh i always thought i'd be like uh actually one of the, the first job real job out of college i had was working for ralph bakshi the uh, you know kind of weirdo independent sure. animation guy and he hired me and uh but then he skipped town he shut down his shop and uh i went back to mtv i was going to work for mtv for two weeks as a storyboard revisionist and then start on my job for Bakshi and then I went in and it was like a ghost town where like the door I pushed the door open in it and there was like papers like open windows blowing like papers on no furniture I'm like he's gone he's gone what? yeah he's crazy dude fun dude but like out of his mind uh so uh I went back to MTV and uh oh the point of that story is I thought I was gonna be like an independent like fuck the man like like New York animator like Ralph Bakshi or, or Bill Plimpton or somebody, right. right? And then I started working at MTV and, uh, and uh, you know, became like, you know, got a guy in the system of doing cartoons and stuff. So uh, L.A. didn't really occur to me initially. Like, I thought, I'm like, I'm going to be independent, like, New York guy. But then as I started working on TV shows and stuff and developing stuff and sold a show and things like that, I'm like, ah, oh, this is 
this is cool. Maybe I want to do this. And then that downtown show only went for one season. Got a lot, a lot of critical acclaim and awards and shit, but it got canceled. Did you get an Emmy for that? We got nominated for a primetime Emmy. That's I think it amazing. was MTV's only primetime Emmy nomination for it's, animation. Wow. Because at the time, like, Beavis and Butthead wasn't considered serious enough to get an Emmy, you know? That's crazy. And it's weird. Like, can you, you think watch Dari it anywhere? Would, is it, is it, is you it available? Watch it, you can watch a bootleg. Like, you can, um, you may or may not be able to get a bootleg if you search it yeah. online. And... What was my point? Oh, yeah. So, anyway, so I, I hadn't thought about L.A. until, uh, so the downtown show gets canceled, right? And I convinced my wife at the time, she was my girlfriend, to quit her job because she was working in this celebrity. She worked at a celebrity photo agency that represented all these, like, famous celebrity photographers like Mark Seliger and David LaChapelle and all these guys. And she hated it because like, that business is really, really brutal. And she would come to MTV and be like, man, it looks like you have fun. I'm like, we do. We're making cartoons. You should quit your job. Do this. Because she went to school for painting and film. And I'm like, come in. She came and like, worked as a color stylist. And then so she quit her job. And she just had like a couple little freelance jobs. And then I lost the show I was doing. And then we were living in this house in Williamsburg. And the landlord came. He's like, hey, I'm selling my house. You got to get out by the end of the year. So we had two months left. We had to move out of our house, and we had no jobs, so no pressure. I was like, "Fuck it, let's go." Oh, and then the thing that was re- really the thing is like, the, you could go back to directing Ontario. And I thought for a second, I was like, "Man, I think I hit the ceiling of what I could do in New York if I stay here." My show got canceled. They're not going to give me another one at MTV. Why they cancel if it if it was nominated for an Emmy? It, that happened after they canceled oh. it. <laughs> Gosh, that sucks. But uh, yeah, the uh, so uh, uh, we went to. I remember going to the Emmys that year. It was uh, I was hanging out with uh, Seth MacFarlane and his, uh, Family Guy had gotten canceled too, and we were both sitting there like, "Hey, both our shows got nominated for Emmys, and they're both canceled." <laughs> you know, at the time, yeah, that was before you guys put on the reruns and, and gave it a new life, right. you know, and. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, when they were like, you could go back to direct on Ontario, I was like, man, we should move to L.A. Let's go out there and see what's up. So we didn't have any jobs lined up, but I figured, just move out there, see what happens. And we figured it out pretty quick, you know. It's, What'd you do? It's, uh, What'd you, how'd you land? You know, I, I uh, one thing was, like, I, I, I uh, the guy who was the producer on Beavis and Butthead had moved out there, like, a couple years previous. And he ended up at Klasky Chupo, uh, he was the creative director of their commercials division. So he's like, hey, you want to get rep to direct commercials? So I started directing a lot of commercials. I directed one for, actually a couple commercials for Budweiser. Oh, so you did? It back to that. Yeah. The, uh, so that was a cool gig. And then uh, I was doing stuff for the for the networks, like, you know, directing or, or you know, like supervising directing on stuff. And, uh, you know. It's. I knew a lot of people, and also I gotta say I didn't. I didn't plan this strategically, but it's a much better situation. To when I, I, we actually got nominated for the Emmy for downtown after I moved to LA because you know the show came out and it aired in '99 over 2000, and then they I don't know when in the spring or something of, you know it's around this time right. So what is it? The summer they announced like the primetime Emmys so. It got announced while I was in L.A., like, looking for jobs. And they're like, oh, you're a fucking Emmy-nominated primetime show creator. It's a good 
position to be in when you're looking for gigs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, uh, so it just worked out well for that, you know. It was luck. It worked out lucky, you know. So what did you do then? So then... Uh, did some ads. Yeah, did a lot of commercials, you know, and I was on the, the, the weirdo list. Um, that's what do you mean? It, like, uh, Klasky had a lot of the guys that they would they would have their their roster, and it's like, these are the guys that go out for, like, the cereal commercials or, like, the Keebler Elves or uh-huh. the whatever, the, the safe stuff. And then there would be, like, these are the guys that, like, if it needs to be a weird thing. So I remember it was me, a guy named Dave Foss, and a guy uh, named Bill White were the three. Those were the guys. We we were the three like weirdo bid guys. And the guy I worked with all the time there on this stuff was John Schnipp, who we ended up working together of course. Uh, a lot. You know, he actually when we first started Titmouse before we even started doing uh, what's it called uh, series and stuff, uh, he actually rented uh, an edit room from us. And he would like hang out. He pretty much not even pretty much. He would literally live there. He would like sleep there yeah. and edit and stuff. And it would be like that room, you know, it's, uh, it was definitely Schnepp's room. Like you'd walk in and you'd get that Schnepp, uh, atmosphere yeah, as, soon as, you walked in, <laughs> as soon as you walked in, in there. But that's when I really got to know him you yeah. know, before we started working on Metaloglypse was on that stuff. And I had met him before that. I'd met him actually, uh, back at MTV, uh, he, had sent in this thing called Flack Crisp. Did you ever see no, that? Uh-uh. It was this weird live action, but like composited with like crazy weird digital effects. Man, I don't know if this exists somewhere. We should really put that out. But um, it starred Nick Offerman before Nick what? Offerman wasn't uh, famous in any way at the time. And Nick Offerman was just this action hero running around like in outer space, like fighting weird, like schnapp creatures and stuff. It was bizarre. Yeah. I mean, as you can imagine. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know if you, if your audience, how familiar they are with John Schnapp, but he passed away a, a year ago, uh, yesterday. Uh, it's uh, crazy. He was a good friend and an excellent super weirdo. I was, I was with you, uh, here at Comic-Con last year. Yeah. And I think your phone buzzed yeah. while we were talking. Oh, man. And it lit up. Yeah. That was rough. He's, uh, yeah, he's a singular human being. He cut man. some Space Ghost stuff for us out in L.A. Yeah, yeah. We had a black leather couch that he stayed on when he cut it. Yeah, yeah. he didn't drive, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, that's so right. So he'd take the bus yeah. across town. That's right. Santa Monica come in. Yeah. Work on Space Ghost all night, all That's day. Right. That's sleep right. on that couch. That's right. And then yeah. eventually go home just yeah. whenever he was yeah. Yeah. knew yeah. when he was yeah. done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, and and uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Schnepp's like uh, physical appearance, John Schnepp. John Schnepp. He was a really tall dude. So very tall, crazy and I hair. Drive, and he had that crazy hair that stuck up high on his uh, on his head. And I would drive him around a lot because he didn't drive. You know, he grew up in. New York, and then moved to Chicago at, like, driving age and never learned to drive. So, But then he lived in L.A. for, like, 25 years. Hard to ever, live in L.A. Ever <laughs> learning to drive. Actually, he did learn to drive. He did? Like, two years ago, but then he never drove. Like, he got a license. At least he's like, at least now I can drive. Yeah, I think, I yeah. But when I would drive him around uh, because of his height and his, his, his height of his hair, he would get a car head. You know how people get hat head? Because his head would actually touch the top of the car and flatten out his hair from the roof of the car. <laughs> so, yeah. That's funny, man. But yeah, man. Real good dude. Tragic loss. Yeah, man. And I had this thing happen. 
So I was staying in Austin, Texas the week after uh, he passed last year, right? We have a place outside of Austin, and we, we bought it from these hippies, right, who had all these, like, new-agey, like, kind of, like, energy circles around it. They have a labyrinth that you could walk, and there was this cool, and uh, it was cool, right? Like, uh, I'm not a ghosty guy, but I was, like, about to go to sleep, and I was in that state where you're not quite asleep. You're just, like, about to fall asleep, and the family had already gone to sleep, and I was kind of hanging out on the couch and looking out the window at one of those energy circles. And then at the energy circle, it looked like some 80s special effect. This is a true story, at least, you know, whatever. I don't know how this came about, but uh, it looked like one of those, like, Jedi ghosts, you know, a blue transparent or translucent version of John Schnepp appeared in the in the energy circle and floated over to me, right? And he looks at me and he says, repeat after me, scrimble, jamble, cleanble, gooms, gwimble, jamble, gloom, right? And I repeat it exactly, and then he's like, nope. And then he says another nonsense phrase, right? And then I repeat it exactly, and he's like, nope. And then that happens like eight or nine times where he keeps asking me to repeat this nonsense phrase, and every time I repeat it exactly, and he says, nope. And then the last time he did it, I decided I'm going to say a, a totally different nonsense phrase. And then when I did that, he like folded his arms and went like, and like nodded his head and floated away backwards. So that was like my last interaction wow. with maybe Schnepp's ghost. Who can know, right? Either it's like my subconscious mind, like working out something in my brain as I'm about to fall asleep, or it was his ghost. After it happened, did you, yeah. did you go to sleep? I did. Yeah, I did go to sleep, but I was freaked out for a while. The next day you, know? you wake up and you're... Yeah, I was like, oh, that was weird. Shrimp. Yeah, and I told Shannon and then actually told that story at his memorial service, too. Yeah, it was uh, yeah, a crazy, crazy experience. Yeah. Wow. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. You believe in ghosts now? Maybe. Maybe. Who can know? Sounds I'm working, like you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like uh, ghosts. That's cool, man. metalocalypse like oh man talk about that show that was so fun that was that was a weird coming together of things oh here's i'm gonna do a sidebar to the present and then go back to the past so whenever we do panels at these conventions right we always get the same questions over and over again what do they ask uh well one of them (laughs) one of them i'm sure you get this one why does it take so long between seasons of venture brothers yeah right that's not what i'm gonna talk about Uh how do i get a job coming back yeah yeah exactly but, yeah, the one that I get all the time is like, hey, are they ever going to bring Metalocalypse back, yeah. right? And it's always been, no, like, that's not going to happen. After it was over, obviously, after Doomstar, I'm like, it's not happening. You know, I know you guys want it. You can fax as many things in. You can hold as many protests in front of Hulu as you want. Right. It's not happening. But now, with the Adult Swim Fest, yeah. uh, Brendan's performing death clocks performing and we're making new uh, music videos for it so that? you maybe you can't get a new tv show series but you can see if you go to adult swim fest you'll get to see some cartoon metal yeah. stuff that you have never seen before november so 15th and cool. 16th yeah there LA. you go but anyway so are you doing so you're doing animation for the festival yeah yeah we are so you're doing um, metalocalypse animation now yeah isn't that fucking crazy that's crazy yeah <laughs> yeah the uh 
And uh, so go, that brings you back to, like, the beginning of that project, which is really weird. So I knew Brendan Small, Tommy Blatcher, the two creators, separately from working on them with different projects. And I knew Schnepp, obviously, really well. And uh, the, uh, you know, Brendan, I was working on a project with him for Sci-Fi Channel that never went anywhere, but we were already working together. Tommy, I knew from around, he had been in, like, writer's rooms and edit sessions. And I'm like, that's, like, the funniest fucking guy. And also, I like metal. And that's pretty much, I was from New Jersey. You know, it's like metal right. and hip-hop. That's what you right. listen to right. when you're from New Jersey. Who do you and like? The uh, Oh, man, I like... Uh, Man, th- who I loved, loved, loved. My first concert that I went to when I was 14 was King Diamond. You Hell know, yeah. King Diamond sure. and Merciful Fate. And I remember my mom, I asked my mom, because it was in Philadelphia, right? I was like, I want to go see King Diamond. She was like, no, I'm not. That's devil music. I'm not taking you. You're not allowed, right? So this is the perfect, like, 14-year-old in 1986 story is, like, we boosted my friend's dad's car none of us had driver's licenses and drove to philly and went to see the cons because there was enough time that my mom forgot the night you know and she didn't know so we just she was, it wasn't uh, on her radar yeah yeah King so diamond we, was playing exactly so we we drove uh the car and i well my, my one friend was having a party that night when his parents were out of town so i told my mom i was going to his house right and i was like well my mom because before cell phones is like when my mom calls the first time because I knew I was going to be late and get in trouble, but I needed to buy some time. I was like, the first time she calls, ask him where I am, tell him I'm in, and tell her I'm in the bathroom. And the second time, tell her I just left and I'm on my way home. But she didn't know he was having a party, so I knew he could answer the phone. So then when I did eventually, like when I was finished with my Devil Music concert, which I absolutely loved seeing, by the way, uh, I remember came back, I was all hoarse, kind of like I am now from fucking screaming all night yeah. last night. And she was like, are you drunk? And I wasn't drunk, um, but I figured that's the lesser thing to take. I'm like, yeah, I'm drunk. And she's like, what What were you doing? And I was like. Drinking. Yeah, there's this kid who was like the bad kid or the bad influence kid. And then my mom knew uh, this guy. If you're listening, you'll probably never hear this. But at the time, I was hanging out with this guy, uh, Craig Wheelock, who was oh, like yeah. a, I don't know, skater kid or whatever. And I mean, he was great. He was a cool dude, nice guy. But I guess my mom, for some reason, thought he was a bad influence. So I was like, I'll just tell her. I was like, I was getting drunk with Craig Wheelock. And she's like, all right, you're grounded. But I was like, man, that's a so much better situation than I fucking stole a car and drove to Philadelphia and saw the devil music. You know? So, uh, yeah, metal. But anyway, so we first started making Metal Metalocalypse. It was so fun because... The studio was our first series. You know, we had been doing a lot of short-form stuff, pilots and all different weirdo shit. But, um, you know, just trying to figure out that show was so fun. And uh, Adult that was, Swim, this was your first series? First series that, that we produced it inside of Titmouse. Yeah, so I'd worked on a bunch of series and created series and ran series and stuff and had done stuff for Cartoon Network like Megas and things. But this is the first one we were doing it internally. And it was great. It's like it was such a weird process because it wasn't like... You know, Adult Swim's so freeing. They weren't like, who are you hiring? It was like we brought on whoever we want. We kind of did whatever we want. Um, also, Brendan was pretty brazen back then and uh, wouldn't just ignored uh, our point executive, Nick. Just wouldn't 
respond to him or do any notes that he gave to the point where Nick would just give up. You know, <laughs> so uh, you know, at the time, it's like because because uh, Brendan just had uh, he had already had a relationship with Lazo from home movie, so he's yeah. like. You know, why do I have to deal with this new guy? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? right. So I think that, you know, whatever, politically, who knows if that's the best way to deal with a TV network, but it worked out great for show. Brendan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So uh, the, uh, 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 yeah, and like we brought in this guy, Antonio Canobio, to be the art director, who's a guy I've known forever. And like, I'm like, he's going to kick ass and nobody asked even to see his work i'm like he's just gonna be he's gonna make it look awesome he just brought him yeah, yeah, exactly and he did make it look awesome so there's artists who execute and there's also artists who bring in their own yeah you want approach. ones with big brains with like that think about shit and bring ideas i mean there's there's a place for everybody there's a place for straight like executors too but um yeah he really influenced the the vibe of that show considerably i think and uh yeah, it was, uh, and it was very loose. You know, that show, you know, there were scripts, but yeah, when Brendan and Tommy would go in the booth, a lot of times they'd improv so much that they'd find a new story in the booth, and then we'd follow that path, and then it becomes a totally different episode. And just, that was the other thing that was great working with Adult Swim, because it's not like, you know, if you did that with another network, it'd be tough, because you'd need to get approval. Like, you'd be like, hey, this is the script we approved. How come... Your animatic is a totally different yeah. story that has nothing to do with that, you know. But it was great uh, where it's like, well, I think we probably would have got those notes if it wasn't funny. But they were they were really right. funny. So then it's Can't like, argue okay, with it. yeah, exactly. So you do a, a lot of animation for the for the performances, I guess, like you're doing now. You know what the secret is? The secret technology what? that we use for that, right? Because uh-uh. it's like this thing, you know, these metal bands, it's real, real, like, fast drumming and, like, you know, that double bass and yeah. single frame edits. A lot of single frame edits in these things, like really fast cutting. And if that shit's off by just a little bit, it ruins the... the there's a, a disconnect, right, from what the band's playing and what you're seeing on right. screen. So we're trying to think. It's like, how do we sync this up to the band? How do you playing? sync that up? Yeah. Uh, all it is is uh, the, the drummer, Gene Hoagland, who's like just a really, really good metal drummer. There's just a click track that goes into his ear that's like synced with the with the actual footage so he just plays to the to the click track he's playing to the cartoon yeah he's playing to the click track of the cartoon yeah wow. <laughs> yeah so that's how the band and it works perfectly did you try and do it the other way first no that was the first thing we tried and it works so we're like let's not try another way <laughs> you know, wow, he's actually playing to the animation <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah single frame edits and is that is that the uh what's the test that they run oh the harding test harding yeah. test well the first bunch of seasons that wasn't a concern we explain the harding test oh yeah so the harding test is this thing for it's like it's like a test for i know it's for epilepsy it might also cover other things but it's basically a, a, a very expensive piece of software that will diagnose whether your episode has uh any kind of visuals in it that might trigger an epileptic episode right um whether it be strobing effects or fast cuts or sometimes it's like single frame flashing lights yeah exactly diagonal or horizontal lines like like panning by too quickly high contrast so if you show that on tv yeah so that's what it's for right people can be triggered and that happened right was it pokemon Uh, um, pokemon is what started it right but um that 
I don't know this guy Harding. Yeah. Right? All the networks use it now. Uh-huh. You think it's bullshit? Here's what I've heard. Uh-huh. The guy who invented the spec of what it does and the guy who makes the software, it, like, the guy who said this is this is what you need is the guy who also makes all the money on it. So it's like it's a right. one dude, like, singular ecosystem. I get if you're a network, right, you want to have your liability sorted out, right? So if somebody does you know, have a seizure or have something bad happen and they sue you as a network, you'd be like, well, we did our due diligence. We used this test that's supposed to be the thing. Yeah. Right. And uh, so maybe maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. Who can know? I guess so far so good. I, I don't think it can hurt, right? You it can't hurt. bullshit on it, though. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's interesting. But I mean, so it's I- a good thing. It's a good thing sure. to not cause people to have epileptic real. seizures. Yeah. So I guess if there's a chance that it's helping, it's a good thing, right? <laughs> but did that affect the animation and the live performances? Uh, did it not apply to that? It didn't apply to the concert because I think concerts already have a bunch of flash and right. lights and stuff. Yeah. But TV, it did. We had to tone down the opening. We had to take uh, in later seasons, like tame, take uh-huh. frames out of the opening and metal oclips. Did and you stuff. get other uh, crazy notes for uh, standards and practices? We mostly get them on the kid shows. Oh, oh, but oh, for for Metalocalypse, yeah. crazy notes, man. It not so much because, again, like Adult Swim lets you get away with a lot. I mean, actually, the main thing here's the was the main one for uh, Metalocalypse is uh, there's a character, Doctor Roxo, who loves to do yeah, cocaine. Loves cocaine, and uh, although he could talk about doing cocaine all the time, you could show piles of cocaine all around him. You could show him holding cocaine. You could show cocaine around the rims of his nostrils, but you could never uh, show him actually doing cocaine. Huh. You could never show him snorting cocaine. Yeah, which you know is kind of silly because there's no question that he's continuously doing cocaine the whole time. But that was like an S and P. Like you can't show the actual act. Interesting. Of, uh, oh, and then the th- the other thing that happened across. All our shows, and I'm assuming all shows across Adult Swim, later on, like this happened maybe, man, like five years ago when uh, the, this might be something you have to cut to. When the, uh, when the Truth truth guys uh, uh, bought a big block of advertising on uh, Adult Swim, you know, uh-huh. the Truth anti-smoking yeah. campaign, we got the note, like, you got to cut smoking out of all, like, any new shows, can't have people smoking. So... And uh, Super Jail was a big, like, everybody smoked. All the characters smoked in Super Jail. So Christy was real smart. He's like, hey, I get it. You know, Truth Campaign pays the bills. That's, you know, that's what allows our cartoons to exist. But can we do one last smoking episode where there's one cigarette left in the jail and they have a gigantic fight over the last cigarette and we did that episode and that was like and then after that there was no more smoking in super jail and they, on the network yeah and on the network. That was the last incidents of smoking on the yeah, network yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah so uh you're not gonna see people smoking in adult swim cartoons since whenever that was that's funny. 2014 or i didn't know that, that was. yeah <laughs> so you've expanded. Titmouse has expanded tremendously. We keep expanding. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. The uh, L.A., we've got a few offices, New York and Vancouver. Yeah. So we make cartoons all over the place. Why do you do that? Why do you need different offices? Well, you know, the New York one was all about Adult Swim because basically, um, like, 
uh, Chris McCulloch and Christy Krakis are two guys I've known forever. Actually, Christy worked on Daria when I was working on Daria and at MTV, and he lived uh, on my same street in Williamsburg. We lived one block away from each other, so I'd see him on the train all the time. We'd party, we'd hang out in uh, in New York when we were at MTV. We kept in touch when he was in that band Cheeseburger. When he swung through town, we'd hang out and stuff. And then we didn't do the first season of Super Jail. That was done at Augenblick, uh, who's a friend, too. That They're a great studio. But um, he then got a gig. He got, like, a Comedy Central show that had a bigger budget. And he turned down season two of Super Jail. And Christy was like, I need a place to do my show. Aaron's not going to do it. Um, and uh, Aaron had good reasons. He was like, it's funny. I called him. I was like, why are you turning this down, man? Is there something I got to look out for? He's like man i don't want to be you only want to do one show at a time and make it good not be like like making like five ten shows at the same time so i was like all right that's cool he's like plus this comedy central show has a lot bigger budget you know we're going to be able to you know run my studio better so anyway the point of it is super jail didn't have a studio and christy's like hey can you take over super jail at Titmouse? but i don't want to move to la and then at, at this similar time uh chris mcculloch uh they parted ways with the studio uh, that was doing Venture Brothers. He's like, I need a place to do Venture Brothers, and I don't want to move to L.A. So both Christy and McCulloch, it was a weird thing. Uh, they went out with Ali in New York and conspired on a plan to convince me to open up a studio in New York. And they called me afterwards, and they're like, would you open a studio in New York? And I went out there, kind of scouted it out with Antonio Canobio, the guy I was telling yeah. you before, and we're like, I think we could do it. And since I was from New York, it didn't freak me out. I had already worked there yeah. and knew everybody. So I ended up, uh, Lazo called me, and he's like, hey, so what's up with this New York studio? And I'm like, well, I'll open it. You need a place, and this is the best thing. This is, And that, that's a guy that Lazo, you know, uh, you know, he's an interesting character, yeah. like all of us, but he, if he says like a, like a, like I think he's really fair and really, really you can really believe things. He if he declares something to you to support you as an artist, he basically said the thing. There's only only insurance I needed to open a studio, which was if you open a studio in New York, I'll support you with work. And I was like, all right, I believe you. And then he did, so wow. it worked out well. And that's why we opened the New York studio. Fantastic. Yeah, because he's like, I got a bunch of creators in New York that need stuff all the time. So it's like. You know, it's, uh, you know, uh, PFFR can't make everything in New York. Right, right. right. <laughs> you know? And how about Vancouver? Yeah, yeah. And Vancouver was a similar thing, right, where basically it was, like, opportunity-based, where we were we were doing this show Motor City for Disney, and it was hard to find. We needed, like, really, really strong 2D animators. And that culture in L.A. had kind of been whittled away because they shipped shows overseas most of the time and we had animators in-house but even even in our shop we couldn't find enough to do like the really high quality 2d animation you know not just like the puppeted animation so we started freelancing and we were freelancing to like a group of maybe 15 or 20 animators in 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 canada and uh ben kalina who's like more of our business guy right he was like you know if we open a studio in, in vancouver we could get tax credits on these guys and it would be a lot cheaper. We could like actually have better production value. So 
we were looking at opening the studio in Vancouver, and then one of our animators sold a show to Nickelodeon, right? And he told Nickelodeon that he wanted it to be animated at Tim Mouse, and they were like, Nickelodeon's like, we can't afford to animate this in L.A. And they were right. Nickelodeon's like, yeah, we can't. Like, it would be too expensive to do it in L.A. But I was like, hey, man, we're opening this shop in Vancouver, and we just, like, really pushed down we put the gas pedal to the floor we opened that studio got it like up and running from like zero to like 35 people in it in like a month it's like we just we're like all right we're doing it you know and uh and that one's real big now there's like 300 employees in vancouver how many employees at tim house now there's 750 employees man isn't that bananas how's that feel from going from day one to this man it's weird it's like i like it it's cool i mean I love that we're making all these cartoons and stuff, but I do kind of miss the, like, when you have less than 100 employees, you can know everybody. Yeah. Like, every single person, you can know their name, you can know their personality. And those days are gone. I yeah. can't keep track of 750 people. I'm it's lucky people if I know their faces. Has. I know, it's bonkers, right? Well, like I was saying, it, this in, it's a good time to be an independent because we're working for everybody. I think we're in production on 13 series right now, so it's like... And it's for every, you know, it's for pretty much everybody. And then pilots and stuff, too. Even, like, other weirdos who are trying to get into animation who've never done it before. Like, there's, like, I feel like everybody's trying to do an animated yeah. series now. It's You're bonkers. the gold standard. Ah, well, thank you, man. <laughs> How do you find people to work for you? You said you go, you pull them right out of school. Sometimes, you know, the best way I find, if you can get it, is referrals, right? Because... Somebody can have a really kick-ass portfolio or a really good reel, but you don't know what they're like to work with. Like, you don't know their speed. You don't know their professionalism. Like, you know, if they're an asshole, <laughs> you know. So if somebody can vouch for somebody, if you have a, you know, somebody who's worked with that person or if it's a student, like a lot of times they'll they'll pull the coattails of the other students, you know. They're like, hey, man. Yeah. Uh, you looking for guys? This guy was my roommate. He's also real good, or you know, this was, this was my girlfriend. She's better animator than me, or whatever. You know, that's usually how you find people. Or even some of the teachers will hip us. They're like, "This is the one you got to look out for," and they'll wow. like slip us the thing, you know, ahead of time. So, but uh, yeah, so but I think that's an important thing for students. Like this art school, man, it's expensive. It's kind of a racket, right? Because you could learn art. You could get skillful at art and spend way less money and not have all this like crazy student debt. But the best thing about these art schools is you get connected through them because the teachers are usually connected with people. The alumni is usually gone on to do other stuff. And the other students that you come up with are going to get jobs and they're going to recommend you and stuff. So part of it is like, you know, developing your skill as an artist. But the bigger part about going to these schools is uh, it's just, you know, making sure that you meet a lot of people and are around a lot of people that you're going to be working with for the rest of your career. That's the thing. I taught one year at this. I went to the School of Visual Arts in New York and I taught there for one, actually only one semester because I ended up moving to L.A., but um, that was like my opening speech. I was like, if you came here and your sole purpose is just to get a job in animation, 
you should drop out today, <laughs> like save yourself a bunch of money, go get an internship somewhere, like, you know, take take cheaper art art classes. But if you want to develop your style, develop as an artist, get to work on your own films, be around a bunch of like-minded people, then that's the reason to be here because you could waste this in four years if you don't, like, if you don't play it right, you could waste all your money because you're, you're not going to... This, this diploma does not guarantee you a job. You know, it's like it's meaningless in this industry. So if you're paying all this money, make sure you use it. Make sure you, you know, meet all these people. Make sure you you actually, you don't try to get grades. You try to just do cool work and stuff. I don't know if anybody like they looked at me like blank. You know, they're right out of high school. They don't know what I'm talking about. They're like, sounds like good advice. What the fuck is this guy talking about? You would know. You know. You would know. Do you still draw? I do, but do you work not on as these shows. Often. Do you? Do you? Man, it's harder and harder. Miss that? I'm mostly a guy that goes to meetings now, and when I do draw, it's usually at the opposite sides of the. It's like the very extreme bread on a very tall sandwich, right? So I'm only the at the very beginning or the very end where it's like, I'll like draw something on a post-it note and be like, it should be like this, and it's like a vague, like almost not even a drawing, like the right. most like base level of a thing. Or it's like tweaking something at the very end, like in a After Effects or an edit of like you know just like dialing it in and putting a little extra like sheen on stuff. Yeah. I'm very rarely doing stuff in the middle of the process these days. Um, every once in a while, I'll do drawings or some sometimes for the promotional stuff or dumb stuff. Like we're doing, I'm doing the next T-shirt for our next Smash Party, so it's right. like stuff like that. That's what, fun. Tell us about your you Smash know. Party. Oh, so that's a thing. That we started in New Jersey back for fun, where um, we would just take things like TVs and like porcelain vases and electronics and just smash them with sledgehammers and stuff, and it was just tons of fun. And then we moved out to LA, you know, started Titmouse. We started doing it at Titmouse. It kind of became our company party, and uh, now it's gotten huge. We we build this big cage in the parking lot and. We have bands play and food trucks and, you know, it's, it's almost like this thing. Like, the last couple of years, over 2,000 people have come to the Smash Party. Wow. It's a real, it's a real crazy party. But, but we have, uh, you yeah, we've gotten, like, real legit with it now. We have people sign releases. And you get a wristband. You can't go in. We have uh, four people attending the cage. There's one called the Ringmaster, right? The Ringmaster is kind of like the shot caller who, like, is like the hype man and kind of like announces the people and gets them all riled up. And then there's the referee. The referee just looks for anybody doing anything safe and has a whistle and blows a whistle if anybody tries to do something crazy. And then we have two professional medics, like actual medics we hire from like a, like, you know, like EMT place. And they, the reason we have two is so in case somebody actually has to be like fixing somebody up and a second person gets hit hurt then they can fix the second person up because we had that happen in the past too where what it's happened? like well you know it's not usually that but it's Glass usually flying. like cuts and stuff yeah. like that you know oh in the cage it's all these layers like because it's like we have like plastic around the bottom and then it's a chain link fence but the, we put this like fine mesh screen around it so even like little tiny bits of glass and stuff can't get through the cage and one year i remember you learn a little bit every year like one year somebody um threw an axe at a tv and it bounced off the tv and then that's before we had a ceiling on the cage and it was spinning around and everybody was looking at it like 
holy shit, that axe might come out into us. And luckily it didn't. It fell back in. But I was like, remember looking to the side of the person sitting next to me. He's like, we need to get a ceiling on this thing next year. <laughs> like, that's not a good sign. And, and we, like, over the years just learned things. It's like we don't allow people to smash, like, food, like, no watermelons like Gallagher because it gets too slippery in yeah. there. And uh, we don't allow fire because it's for obvious reasons like a lot of times people would light shit on fire and i'm like that's just getting too it's a little too dangerous it's dangerous this thing is dangerous enough it's too <laughs> like, dangerous yeah, we don't need we don't need people getting lit on fire you know and uh the uh the yeah we did have one guy uh that had to go to the emergency room one year uh he had to get six stitches in his hand but that's uh that's the worst injury we've had uh, so so far pretty good and, and that one that guy was even wearing uh, yeah, learning about things like that's the year. Like he had like, like heavy leather workman's gloves on, right? Because we have everybody. Everybody's got to wear safety goggles, and they have to have, you know, long pants, no open-toed shoes, and we have other safety gear. You can get as much. You can get as safe as you want. You can have every inch of your body covered if you want helmets, all this shit. But we have like a base minimum, and even that year, I was like, because he had a sledgehammer. You know, when you, you you swing a sledgehammer, you're supposed to slide your one hand to the bottom and use it as like a lever but he kept his hand at the top near the metal part and he smashed through a tv screen and when he pulled his hand out like a piece of glass cut his cut his hand and i'm like man even with heavy leather gloves so we look we research it and we got snake handler gloves and that's what we use now because they can survive like you can have a fucking like cobra bite it and it won't be able to penetrate it so those snake handler gloves are what we use now so it's like even like you know, even like a cobra biting down on it with full force can't penetrate this thing. So, so far, those have been good <laughs> for keeping people from getting cut. But, yeah, we learned learn a lot on that. that and then we made a VR game uh, called Smash Party VR where you can be in VR and, and it's like you're at the Smash Party, but wow. you're in VR. We should uh, broadcast it's real dumb. Oh, yeah. You should have people play it, man. It's yeah. real dumb. Yeah. You would like it. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> Chris Pernofsky, Woo! the gold standard, the standard right. bearer for American yes. animation, we world did a animation. podcast. Thanks for coming this. on. Thanks for inviting me. Music from this episode is a song called Bochicha from the album Sun Bronze Greek Gods by Dom. Be sure to visit adultswim.com slash podcast for links to some of the things Chris and I were just talking about. And we'd love to hear from you, adultswimpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your requests, comments, criticisms, whatever. Thanks to Dave Bonowitz for editing this, Christina Loringer for her help, and thanks to you for listening.